Good morning. morning. Have you picked up on the theme of our morning yet? What I'm going to be preaching about, anybody? Generosity. When you hear generosity in a church, what does that seem like it's just a code word for? Money. Money, that's right. Um, And we are going to talk about money today, but my my hope is that we uh, talk a whole lot more than uh, just money. But, But I need to start by just kind of putting that on the table. And acknowledging that when, uh, when a church talks about generosity, when a pastor preaches about generosity, there's a couple things going on in the room. The first thing, I think, is that many of us immediately just kind of feel like, ugh. Because maybe, um, maybe we came from a church background where money was just talked about a lot. Um, or maybe we came from a church background where it felt like we were manipulated uh, to give money and, and more money. Anybody know what I'm talking about at all? Um, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church at all, and your, uh, your view of what church is is mostly shaped by what you see on, like, late-night televangelists. Anybody? That's, like, a secret thing that I like to do, and I don't know why I like to do this, to watch these televangelists. It's not good for my soul, but I do it anyway. And, um, and, and it's, there's some crazy stuff, right? Um, so I think one of the things that happens when, when we talk about generosity is that some of us just go, oh, mm, don't even really want to go there, right? Um, but the other thing that's happening in the room at the same time is, is with me going, I don't want to talk about it. So just so you know, as much as maybe you don't want to hear it, I don't want to say it. Because here's the thing, I, I, I don't want to be that pastor, that preacher, uh, I, I don't want in any way come across as, as manipulating or I don't want anybody to walk away from our church being like, oh, they just are all about money, just like I thought churches were. So can we just put that on the table right now? Is that yes? Okay. I want to show you a video before we get started because I, I saw this this week and I thought this captures some of the anxiety I think that I have, maybe you have around this uh, idea of generosity and uh, I pretty much disagree with everything in this video. Um, you might agree with everything in it. I don't know. I don't really care. Um, I want to show it to you because I think what it does is it, it shows us how our world, how our culture, how our neighbors, how, how, how people think about churches and money. Okay? So let's look at this and then we'll, we'll jump into the scripture. I like how they include yoga in there. <laughs> like, that's just, that's funny, right? Everything else, you're like, yeah, that makes, yoga, really? That's, that's a big need in our this country right now? Maybe. Um, can I just get a couple people, what, what do you think, feel when you see this video? Can I just shout out? So just a couple of you, shout out, what, what do you think or experience when you see this? Say it, say it again, Candace. That's what you used to think. Okay. What else? Anybody else? It reminded you of some experience you've had. Okay. Yep. I'm back. Oh, okay. And, and maybe knowing where the money is going, right? Yep. Okay. Anybody else? 
Uh, like I said, there's a whole lot in that video I, I don't agree with. I actually think it's kind of, um, it's a manipulative video, I think, actually, the way it's put together. But that's okay. Um, the, the, everybody has an agenda, and I think the folks who put that video together probably had some kind of an agenda, and that's okay. What it does, though, I think it, it, it shows us, it reminds those of us who are Christians and who consider ourselves to be committed to, to Jesus' church in our world, that people on the outside of that um, have some interesting ideas of what we do together and why we uh, give, why we receive an offering, why we talk about being generous people. And my guess is that most of us carry some of that into the room with us, that even if we consider ourselves a Christian, even if we consider generosity to be important, that we too have been uh, shaped uh, either by bad church experience or just kind of how our culture talks about money and churches and money and being generous people. So my job this morning is not to totally debunk that video. You can, you can do that on your own if you want to. My job this morning is to give a, a, a brief overview about what the Bible talks about when it comes to generosity and then to focus in on what it means for us to live as generous people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move really quickly from the Old Testament into the New Testament so that we kind of have an overview of how, uh, some of the major themes of how the Bible talks about generosity. And then we're going to focus in together on a passage from 2 Corinthians where a church is wrestling with what does it mean for us to be generous people, to live uh, generous lives together. Um, and, then, and then we'll end by uh, maybe just making some, some observations about how we can pursue this type of uh, generous living. Does that make sense? Yeah? Let me pray for us, then let's jump in. God, we... Uh, come to you as people who, um, I think, who have a, an instinct to be generous, um, who uh, something in us, we, we, we desire to not be stingy, to not be greedy, but, but very often uh, we, we maybe lose our way. So uh, my prayer for us this morning is as we open your scriptures together that we would encounter maybe for the first time, maybe as a reminder, what it means to live as generous people who are responding to a generous God. So I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us new eyes, new hearts. Pray that even just for a moment, we might be able to set aside some of our expectations and experiences and maybe have a a new encounter with your gospel and with grace this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is uh, start in Genesis, which is the beginning of the Bible. So that's always a good place to start. Genesis chapter 4. And uh, so what I want to do is I want to look really briefly at um, how generosity is talked about before the nation of Israel, and then generosity during the nation of Israel, and then we're going to jump ahead into the New Testament. Again, we're going to move really fast. Um, If you're not kind of following all the scripture references, jot them down. You can dig into them later, maybe in your community groups. I I think the first time that we see... uh, Oh, and let me say one last thing. Uh, By generosity, I mean everything. I I mean our lives. I mean anything that we have stewardship over, whether it's our talents, whether it's our education, whether it's our experiences, whether it's our possessions, whether it's our privilege, whether it's... um, Yes, all of it. But here's the problem. Jesus spends about 15% of his teaching time talking about money and possessions. 
So, so while the Bible talks about generosity as being everything that we have any kind of say over, Jesus really dials in to our money and our possessions. So I'm going to do the same thing today with a few exceptions. So we're going to be looking specifically about our stewardship over our possessions and our money, but understand that a generosity from a biblical perspective includes everything that we have, have stewardship over. Does that make sense? Yep? Okay. I think the first time that we see uh, generosity in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, verse uh, 2 through 5. So the story, the backstory is that Adam and Eve uh, were in the Garden of Eden. Things were going great. They rebelled. They had to leave the garden. And, and our story picks up um, after they have had their, their first children, Cain uh, and Abel. And so this is what we find in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, uh, he did not look on with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. That's the story familiar to some of you. Um, The story doesn't end well. It's the first murder that we uh, find recorded in the Bible. Uh, But I don't want to focus on that today. I want to focus instead on Cain and Abel's instinct to offer a sacrifice to God. See, there's no expectation at this point that people should offer sacrifices. There's no system of offering a tithe or offering uh, the best of your labor to God. God hasn't done that. This doesn't exist yet. There is no expectation. There's no system. And yet we still find Cain and Abel offering the, the first of their flock, the first of their crop to God as an offering of thanksgiving. There's no should for them. There's no law that they are keeping. There's, I would say it's an instinct. There's an instinct in these two men to somehow demonstrate that they're aware that everything they have came from God. Does that make sense? And so they give. And we don't know why one's uh, offering was acceptable and one was not. People have different opinions about these things. Uh, the New Testament seems to think that, um, that maybe Cain didn't really have faith when he gave his offering and this is what God was... We really don't know exactly. Um, and that's okay. But, I, but for our purposes this morning, what we see is this, this instinct. So then move forward a little bit uh, and we'll look at Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Now, the backstory here is that God has come to a man named Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great family, your family into a great nation. And by your family, by this nation, I will bless the world. This is the nation of Israel. Uh, before this is all accomplished, Abram is, is wandering around. He's sort of a nomad. And um, he has a nephew, Lot, who has an interesting relationship with Abram. And Lot and his family get captured by some foreign kings and taken into captivity. Abram, being a good uncle, uh, gets 300 and some odd men together and they pursue these kings. They, they, they sneak up on them, they attack them, and they rescue Lot and his family. Okay? So now in our story, they've come back, they've accomplished victory in battle, they've rescued Lot and his family, and this is what we uh, see happen. Verse 18, chapter 14 of Genesis. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. 
Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, we don't know who Melchizedek is. Um, he he kind of just pops up here. And then in the New Testament, that some of the authors refer back. But we don't really know a whole lot about him. Genesis identifies him as a priest, someone who is uh, standing as a mediator, even at this point, before there's even a nation of Israel, someone who's uh, advocating on behalf of people uh, to God. And that's, that's about all we know about Melchizedek. He, he sees Abram coming back. He comes out and he says, Abram, you experienced success in battle because God blessed you. And he blesses Abram there as he returns from the battlefield. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, just like with Cain and Abel, there is no system of tithing in place. Uh, There is no expectation that one should give 10% back to God or to God's priest in this case. Abram just does this. He just gives back. And I would say for our purposes this morning, it's really important that we start here because we're going to see Jesus do the same thing. There is an instinct in us to acknowledge where everything comes from. There's an instinct that now we are messed up people, we're selfish people, we're greedy people, we want more, more, more. But even despite all of that, there's an instinct in us as people created in the image of God to acknowledge, to demonstrate where everything that we have has come from. Amen? And I think this is what we see here with both Cain and Abel and now with Abram, is that despite there not being a law, despite there not being an expectation that one should give a certain amount or offer sacrifices of your best to God, despite the lack of that, they still give. They are, in a word, generous. They're not trying to keep a rule. They're not trying to do the right thing. They're probably, I don't think, even trying to please God. They're simply being generous. They are responding to what God has done for them. I've been blessed with herds of sheep. Is it herds? Herds? Is that what it is? Flocks? What is it? Flocks? Okay. Flocks of sheep. uh, An abundance of crops. And so my instinct is to acknowledge that all of that came from God. And so I offer some back. Abraham, victorious in battle, rescuing his nephew and gaining a lot of war spoils at the same time, acknowledging by tithing back to Melchizedek that all of this comes from God. In a word, it's, it's generosity. You with me so far? Okay. Now, let's move forward and look at the nation of Israel for just a minute. I would say that most of us who came up in church, our ideas about generosity are mostly formed by what we find in the nation of Israel, particularly the books of the law. We're probably not so familiar with the stuff that happens before, or I would say even after when it comes to Jesus. This is where most of our information, I think, comes from. The expectation was if you were a member of Israel, if you were a a, a Jew, you would tithe 10% of everything, not just of some income. Everything that you had Uh, The first and the best 10% belong to God. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 27, three different verses, 26, 30, and 32. No one, however, may dedicate the firstborn of an animal since the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. Whether an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. Verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Verse 32, 
Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. What's happening here? God has called out a nation to himself to bless the world. And I think God is simply codifying this generosity to say as a part of your DNA as a nation, the fabric of who you are is to be a generous people, to acknowledge that everything that you have came from God. So so you tithe 10%. You give back to God 10%. And it's going to be the best 10% to the firstborn, your, your first of your crop. That's what goes back to God. And this becomes known as the tithe. When most of us talk about tithing, this is where, what we're thinking about. It's the 10% of what we have. Now, we get into interesting conversations nowadays. Is that 10% on our gross? Is it 10% on our net? What if it's not tat, right? Well, some of you have those conversations. Some of you, like, I don't want to have that conversation. Anyway, uh, 10% becomes the tithe. But what was the tithe for? Does anybody know? What, what, what was the tithe used for in the nation of Israel? Anybody know? To meet the needs of the people. So, so, so this, is how, this is how we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Two primary uh, uh, reasons that this tithe was collected and what it was put to use for, verses 28 through 29. At the end of every three years, bring all of the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites... These are the priests who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. And the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. I think we could simply say that there are two primary um, purposes for a tithe being collected. The tithe is, a, is a, a response to God's generosity by giving back to God, acknowledging that everything belongs to God. And these tithes then are, are allocated in two different ways. The first is, is, is to support the priests, the Levites. These are the ones who God has called out and said, uh, you are to give your lives over to the leading worship first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It is your job to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. It is your job to advocate for the people. It is your job to lead the people in worship, to remind them of their identity as the people of God. You're to have no other work, no other job. This is it. You don't get any land. You don't get any inheritance. This is it. You're giving your life to this. So because of that, uh, three, every, three out of every, no, four out of every seven years, the tithe went to the Levites priests so they would have a livelihood but the other three years the tithe was set aside what does the text say for who fatherless the widows and the foreigners now we don't often think about this and i think many of us who think about tithing haven't thought about this either But built into the tithing system for the nation of Israel was that this money, the best of what you have, is to provide for the marginalized, to provide for the invisible in your society. Because these were people who, during this time and this day, had very few rights, would hardly have even been seen. They didn't belong, you see. And so from the beginning, God says that now we're going to kind of codify this generosity, how we acknowledge God's generosity to us. And it's going to provide for the worship of the people and and for those on the margins, those who you would forget otherwise, those who may not be able to support themselves. You tracking so far? 
Um, I, 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 I want to say, though, that at the heart of this tithing system is still generosity. God doesn't have in mind, okay, let me set up this system of rules so you don't have to think about be, being generous. So you don't have to be aware of the generosity of your own heart. Rather, what's happening, I would say, is that God is simply integrating into the fabric of this new nation. We are a generous people. So worship will be provided for. So that those on the margins will be provided for. That is going to be built into the structure of our nation. Generosity. Still with me? Okay, let's jump ahead uh, into the New Testament. We're going to look here uh, at Jesus. Uh, we'll look at Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 23. And Jesus comes along, and, uh, and, and I would make the case that Jesus is rather ambivalent about tithing. He doesn't say, yeah, for sure, do it the way you've done it, and he doesn't abolish it either. It's a little bit hard to just look at Jesus and say, this is exactly what we're supposed to do with our tithe. But he sure interacts with money and possessions quite a bit. Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 23, here's what we find. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, again, Jesus isn't just abolishing the idea of tithing in this passage, is he? But he is is recontextualizing it. He's bringing it back to its original purpose, which is what? Generosity. Jesus says, look, you you became so focused on the 10% that you missed the heart of this thing. I mean, you're, you're like taking a knife out and dividing out your cumin. And that's not the point. The heart of this is generosity. You've gotten so focused on getting the percentage right that you've neglected what? What does the text say? You neglected what? Justice. You neglected the things that were at the heart of the tithing system. You became so focused on, am I getting the percentage right? Have I kept every single little piece of this law so that I would be acceptable to God that you missed the heart of it? And Jesus says, you're hypocrites. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Jesus talks about generosity. And he says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I love this imagery. I love how Jesus does this kind of thing. You know, he does these word plays. You know, if your eyes cause you to stumble, rip it out, this kind of stuff, right? Here, what does he say? Your your, your generosity, your giving, ought to be done in such a manner that one hand isn't even aware that it's happening. What's he getting at? The only person who you ought to be interested in knowing about your generosity is who? Is God. Why? Because our generosity is a response to God's generosity to us. Period. Right? So, it, so it, you don't need anybody else to know exactly what you're giving, how much you're giving, how much you've sacrificed to be giving. Why? Because our giving, our generosity, our tithing even, is a response 
to God's generosity to us. So there's only one person who should be interested in this. God. Amen? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, Jesus continues to make generosity a priority. He continues to talk about how important our possessions are and that they don't become our masters, that we cannot serve both God and money. These are very important things to Jesus. But at the heart of it, every single time, is your giving comes out of a generous heart. You're so aware of your God and what God has done for you that you cannot help but be generous with everything that you have. Yes? Okay. Um, now let's get into 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And here's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. Wow, I'm doing pretty good. Great. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Um, the early church now, so, so we have kind of pre-Israel, we have Israel, we have Jesus' teaching, and now the early church comes along, and it kind of tries to get its arms around all of this. We know generosity is important. We know giving is important. We know this is somehow to be a part of who we are. But how do we do it? We have the Hebrew scriptures at this point. We have Jesus' teachings. We have this crazy guy, the Apostle Paul, who comes in ranting and raving about stuff. What are we supposed to do with this? How does this play out in our community life together? This is what the early churches are wrestling with because no one is showing up and saying, this is exactly what every one of you should do. You do this and you're good with God. You don't do this and you're missed. No one's doing that. They're wrestling together. How do we live out this generosity in our individual lives and in our community life together? And that's what I want us to look at in this passage this morning. So let me read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I'll follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. This is, this is Paul. He's writing now. Uh, to the church in Corinth. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then, there will be equality. This is the word of God. 
a little bit of a background here and then um, just kind of five observations from this text. Uh, the Macedonians who Jesus is re- or, uh, Paul is referring to here is a, is a church that's at some distance from the Corinthian church. And like most churches in this time, they are experiencing some level of persecution. Paul says they are in extreme duress, under extreme poverty at this point. Okay, so that's the Macedonians. At the same time, the church in Jerusalem, which is where the church started, mostly composed of Jewish Christians, compared with the Gentile Christians who would have been the Macedonians and the Corinthians. These Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they are really under uh, uh, persecution from two places, from the Romans, but also from uh, some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. There's nowhere for them to fit in. Many of them have had to flee Jerusalem. They're hanging on just barely. So the Macedonians are poor and and persecuted, but the Jerusalem Christians are really poor and really persecuted at this point. Does that make sense? Okay. And so it appears from our passage that um, the Macedonians have decided to collect an offering to be given to their brothers and their sisters in Jerusalem. Out of their poverty, Paul says, they want to give so that these Christians, their family, um, can have their needs met. And they've done it. They've surprised Paul. The Corinthian Christians, on the other hand, what do we see? They started, but they haven't finished. They had good intentions. They had enthusiasm at the beginning to support their family in Jerusalem. And then it dropped off. And it it hasn't been done. So this is, this is some of what Paul is interacting with here. So from this text, and now what I want to do is I want to kind of pull from this overview of the scriptures from uh, the Old Testament, from Jesus' words, and, and I want us to make some observations about what Paul is doing here with this early church. Uh, five, five observations. First is this. Generosity is evidence of God's grace. Say that with me. Generosity is evidence of God's grace. Verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Verse 6. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. And then in verse 7, just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. Do we think about great, uh, giving as, as a grace? Do we think about being generous with our finances, with our possessions as a grace? Anybody? I I think probably not most of us most of the time. I think most of the time, most of us think about generosity and giving as as a duty, as something we should do. Some of us, we're not even sure why we should, but it seems like that's what Christian people do, so... Others of us have a notion that, well, I, I think I'm supposed to give so then God will be good to me. Right? But do we think about giving as grace? Because this word grace is scattered throughout this passage. Paul doesn't want us to miss it. That when he talks about generosity, when he talks about giving, when he talks about our money in our possession, somehow that's tied up in what? The ability for us to be generous, I would say, is actually evidence of God's grace in our lives. Is that good news? God is present. See, we we can't be truly generous 
if we're not first aware of what God has done for us, and that's grace. We can be guilty and give. We can be coerced and give. We can try to assuage our conscience and give. But we can't really be generous and give if we're not first aware of God's generosity towards us. And that, Paul says, is grace. The very fact that you're aware of God's presence in your life, the very fact that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you is evidence of God's presence in your life. And this is grace. You hear this? When we have the instinct to give, when, we're, we, we, when we feel convicted to be generous with what God has given us, this is grace. This wouldn't be happening outside of God's presence in your life. This wouldn't be happening outside of your awareness, which you don't deserve, of what God has done for you. The ability for us to gaze at the cross and know what happened there, what was accomplished there, the generosity of God that was shown to us there, it's all grace. And so the ability to respond to that is also grace, grace. Generosity is evidence of God's grace. In our church, the motivation for generosity will always be grace, will never be guilt. Somebody say amen. The motivation for generosity to give will always be grace. Because you know what? Guilt's not sustainable. But grace gives us life. Yes? Here's number two. Generosity is an antidote to greed and to worry. Uh, my guess, I could be wrong, my guess is that most of us in this room this morning would, would admit to being worried about something. Probably very few of us would like, admit to being greedy. Am I right about that? I'm just going to admit it for you. <laughs> Y'all, you're greedy and you're worried and so am I. I would say these are two of the, just the conditions of our humanity. The human heart is greedy. The human heart is worried. Why Jesus talks about these things a lot. Why do you think Jesus talks so much about possessions and money? It's a condition of our heart. We're greedy, worried, anxious people. We want what's not ours. We want what we don't have. We're worried that what we do have is going to disappear. Interesting studies that are done about kind of the wealthiest of the wealthy and, and, and what is surprising, but maybe not, is that these people, just like everybody else, never feel like they have enough. There's always a next goal, the next amount to attain. When I finally have that, then I'll be secure. Then I'll have enough. Right? It's a condition of the human heart to be greedy, to be worried. And what do we find in this passage? What is an antidote to this? Generosity. Generosity doesn't make us just feel better. Uh, living generous lives doesn't let us kind of go through the week and feel better about ourselves. Being generous people, responding to God's generosity in our lives, actually begins to chop at the knees of the greed and the worry in our life. You see this? Where do, where do we find this in our passage today? Look at verses 3 and 4. 
For I testify, now Paul's talking about the Macedonians here, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now I would say that if anybody deserved to be worried and maybe a little bit greedy, it would be the Macedonians. Because frankly, they didn't have enough. They didn't know maybe where tomorrow's meal was coming from. They didn't know where the next wave of persecution was going to come from. They had, in this t- they had examples all around them of people who had way more than enough. Neighbors with mansions, people with tons of servants. They had more than enough reasons to be greedy and to be worried. And what does Paul say? They, they, they gave way beyond their ability even to give. And this wasn't like, yeah, I guess we should do this. What does Paul say? They urgently pleaded with us for the what? For the what? The privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Here is a people who by all rights could have been very greedy, could have been very worried, very anxious, and yet pleaded with Paul, let us give some Let us participate with our family who's under oppression and persecution in Jerusalem. This to me sounds an awful lot like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we studied a few months ago, right? What does Jesus say? Store up your treasures where? In heaven, where they can't be destroyed. Jesus says, look at the birds of the field. God takes care of them. So don't worry about anything. It sounds to me like the Macedonian church actually believed that Jesus meant what he said. Do we? Do we? Are we storing up treasures in heaven? Are are we able to say, I can look and see what God does around me. I can see how God cares for his creation, so why would I be worried about This church under persecution, under duress, says we want to give more. We want to be generous more. We want to stand in with our family in Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the big blizzard, that was like a month ago, right? The big storm that we had, like a month ago? Did you forget about it already? You remember it, right? It was like a month ago, right? And so I, I was, uh, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, I was uh, at a conference up near O'Hare, and... My brilliant plan was I was going to leave late after all the traffic was done, like around 10 o'clock. That's not a brilliant plan. That was the opposite of a brilliant plan. And, um, but so I, I, so I, I, I posted on my Facebook page as I was about to head out, hey, any bets on how long it'll take me to get home? And all kind of people start commenting. And basically the theme of the, the comments were, you idiot, don't try to go home right now. It's really bad out there. And I was like, whatever, you know. And I made a block and I had to turn around. Um, but one of the people who commented uh, uh, was a, a woman from a church that I was at a, a few years ago. Uh, probably, you know, my, my mother's age, I would guess. And, uh, and she said, David, seriously, uh, don't, you know, don't try this. And then she commented again. She goes, David, I'm, <laughs> I'm praying that you will make a wise decision. <laughs> Which is like, I mean, you know, right? It's like, you can hear your mother saying that kind of thing. Probably some of you. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. And, um, 
And so then she, she messaged me on Facebook. So, like, so nobody else could see it, right? Just me. And, and she, goes, she goes, David, um, uh, we, uh, some, I, I did some extra work this week, and I, I made $100. She said, I'm, I'm putting this in an envelope and mailing it to you so you can buy a hotel room tonight so you don't have to drive home. Which is, that's nice, right? And so I saw it when I got back into the parking structure, and I actually found some people I could stay with in the hotel. I didn't have to pay. And so I messaged her back, and I said, oh, that's super nice, thank you, but I got a free place to stay, so no worries, I'll I'll be fine. She messaged back. She said, well, I think you're supposed to have the money. Um, So even though you got a free room, I just feel like this is, you know, God wants you to have this, and and we were kind of, weren't expecting this money. And, and here, here's the thing um, that, that you don't know, is that this, this woman um, and her family have just, over the past decade, just been beat up in every way possible. I mean, like, devastating illness in the family, and income just boop, taken out of the picture. So it's been really tough for them. I mean, like, they need other people to kind of come along them and support them in very practical, even financial kinds of ways. And I know all of this. I said, I can't, you know. And so my response, I just didn't respond because she didn't know my mailing address. She's like, send me your mailing address. I just didn't respond. You know, like, it's a passive way of approaching these things. Um, And she still sent it. And somehow she got my address and a few days later, there it is in our mailing, about $100. And I'm pretty convinced that that she needs it more than I need it. You understand? This is a Macedonian person to me. This is a person who really, like, the way that life has treated her over the past decade and her family, she could be greedy and I would get it. I would get it. She could be anxious, she could be worried, and I would be like, I would be too. And yet something in her experience with God has been such that she has encountered a generous God. I mean, you can't talk to this woman for more than... 10 seconds and not get, she can get all Jesus on you really quick. You know, you know what I'm saying? She has encountered a generous God to the point where when she sees my stupid little thing on Facebook, she goes, I could do something about that. I could do, I could do something about that. You see? Worry, greed, you carry these with you every single day whether you know it or not. I don't know what it is for you, if it's a certain kind of car that drives by or seeing someone on a new laptop or a new pair of shoes. I don't know what it is, but there's something in you that will tap into that, "Mm, I want that, right? Or there's that piece of news that you know if it comes, your day is shocked because you're going to be eat up with anxiety and worry the rest of the day. What do we see in this passage here? People who who are plugged into a generous God, who are deeply aware of what God has done for us, by living out of that generosity, actually begin to cut off greed and anxiety at the knees. Anybody need a little bit of that? I do, I do. Number three, generosity contributes to justice. Now here's one that I I frankly just haven't thought about all that much, but uh, we see it in this passage. 
The Macedonians and the Corinthians are Gentiles. I already mentioned this. The the Jerusalem church is mostly Jewish. There is ethnic tension between Gentiles and Jews, not just outside of the church, but even in the church. And we see this in the book of Acts. So there is ethnic tension here. There is some ethnocentrism maybe that is at place here. And yet in this passage, we see equality. We see the Gentiles who are persecuted going out of their way to serve and to care for their Jewish family, their Jewish Christian family. Uh, Look at what Paul says here in verses 13 and 14 as he kind of wraps it up. He says, "Our, our desire for you, Corinthian church, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed. In other words, the point is not for some Christians to get a lot of money while you guys are becoming poor. That's not the idea here. But that there might be, what's the word? Equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. Generosity contributes to justice. Generosity leads to equality. I think one of the reasons that we, we don't consider that at, at, off the top of our heads when we think about being generous people, when we think about giving we think about tithing and we think about being good stewards of what we have. We don't think about justice because we often think about charity. I think many of us. When we think about giving, we're thinking about being charitable people. You know what I'm talking about? We see a need, we try to meet it as best we can, and, and then we move on, right? And that's good. But this is not generosity. Why Paul says that somehow generosity is a two-way street. You see how he does this here at the end of the passage? He said, out of your plenty, you can supply what they need. But mark my words, there will be a day when out of their plenty, they will meet what you need. This is, I think, a very important distinction for us to make. Because many of us, when we think about giving and being generous, we're thinking about um, what we can out of our strength, out of our power, out of our plenty, what we can do to help somebody else. It's a pretty limited view of generosity. Generosity is actually being in a position to be able to receive from somebody else. I know you love that. Isn't it so much better to be the person who's like, oh, I can help you out, than being the person being like, I need to be helped out. Right? Is it just me? It's so much, it feels so much better to my ego to be able to give not so helpful for my ego when I need to receive. Something maybe a little bit messed up in my choosing not to respond to my friend when she asked for my address, right? I don't, I don't want to be needy. Paul says that generosity leads to justice, it leads to equality. Here it is breaking down these divisions of ethnocentrism. Here it is bringing people into equality, to equal footing. This is huge for us as a church. This is huge for us as a church. As a church, we're not about charity. We're about generosity. And what that means is that that when God blesses us, we give. But we also acknowledge our own need. Are you with me? I'm not losing you here yet? Why is this so important? For two reasons. Um, 
First, community is impossible without it. Community is absolutely impossible without it. If I never acknowledge my need to you, I will never be in community with you. It won't happen. If we're to be this church that values authentic community, we have to be generous people. Generous in that we both give and receive. Acknowledging when we have plenty, but acknowledging when we have need as well. Amen? Yeah. Here's the other reason why this is so important for us. We, we believe that we are a church that's been called to a specific place. We're in this neighborhood, we're in this area of the city for a reason. The problem is that we could get the idea that we have something really amazing to offer this neighborhood. We, we could have this idea that, well, we, we, we have these things, we have these people, we maybe have some resources, and look, isn't this great what we can do, what we could accomplish? It's not generosity. Generosity is following God to participate with God in his mission in this neighborhood and acknowledging that we may need some people to be generous to us as well. Now, we may, we, we may, we may need people who we've not even maybe met yet to show us generosity. We as a church, even as we have opportunities to serve and to give, need to be the kind of church that is deeply aware of our own flaws, our own issues, our own needs. Amen? Allowing a new people, allowing the neighborhood itself to shape how we hear God calling us to participate in God's mission. Yes? Um... Last week, uh, at, we had a church lunch after the service, which was, did you guys like that? Those of you who were there, is that good? Should we do that again? Yep. Really good cooks in this church. Seriously. Good cooks. Um, so, so this example does not have anything to do with money, uh, but I think it fits with this idea of generosity. So we're, we're sitting at lunch, and I'm talking with some folks, and um, this young woman from our youth group walks over. And, um, and I hadn't seen her for a while, and so we started talking. And, and I've shared this before, that one of my anxieties as your pastor is that our church is located in a neighborhood that is predominantly African-American. And I am predominantly not. <laughs> right? There's just no question about that. And, uh, and so I, this is one of, kind of the things that I carry with me, one of the anxieties, one of the worries. And as we've talked about this youth group, and I, I, I'm so... Uh, excited about this youth group. I, I cannot wait to see what God is going to do through this ministry. But as I think about it, as I pray about it, one of the things I carry with me is what role can I, as a white man who didn't grow up in this neighborhood, actually play in this ministry? Does that make sense? I struggle with that. I feel that. God, I want to see this happen. I want to see you work among the lives of young people in this neighborhood, in our city. But what, what can I I carry that pretty strongly in me. So when this young woman, and you need to understand how significant this is for me, when this young woman comes up and she sits at the table across from me and she says, Pastor David, big smile, how are you? And then we have a conversation for like 20 minutes. She's asking about her church. I'm asking her about how she's doing because she's told me enough about her life that I actually have some somewhat intelligent questions to ask about her school and where she's thinking about going next year and what she wants to do after she graduates. In that moment, this young woman demonstrated deep generosity to me. 
I don't know if she knew that or not. Maybe she did. But in that moment, I was the beneficiary of her generosity. Do you understand? And this, is, this has to be the kind of church that we are. A church that doesn't just show up thinking that we've got a lot to offer, but understands how much we have to learn, how much we need God to do in our own lives. Yes? Yes, yes, yes. Generosity is evidence of God's grace as an antidote to greed and to worry. Generosity contributes to justice. Generosity is a tangible expression of the gospel. Let's say that together. Generosity is a tangible expression of the gospel. Uh, we've kind of touched on this already, right? We've, we've acknowledged that living generous lives is evidence of God's grace in our lives. But I want to push it a little bit forward and say that it's also an expression of, not just evidence of God's grace in us, but it's an expression of the gospel. When we give, when we live generously, we are actually demonstrating the gospel. Verse 9 in this passage is absolutely profound to me. And it's just this one little verse buried in the midst of a very specific situation. And I love how Paul does this. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Love that verse. That's the gospel. I mean, really, that's it. That's the gospel. And Paul's playing here with the metaphor of poverty and wealth. The eternal son of God. Listen, I'm I'm telling you, the whole gospel is in this verse. What what does he say? Though he was rich. Not, he he was rich at one point. He became rich. He had money for a little while. No, no. Though he was the preexistent eternal son of God. Always was rich. Yes? The Son of God chose the poverty of our humanity. This is the incarnation. This is God taking on flesh. Though he was eternally rich at a moment in time, see the language shifts here, he became poor. He was for all time, he stepped into the poverty of our humanity. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus born of a woman, born in a manger. Yes? The Son of God pre-existing, knowing the riches of God for all time, becoming poor for our sake. Why? In order that we might know the eternal riches of God's righteousness, salvation, grace. Jesus was rich. He became poor so that we, what? become rich. Not that we would be rich for a little bit. Not that we'd have a taste of riches. Not we, we would be rich when uh, God was happy with us. You understand? Jesus, pre-existent, for all time, always was, then stepped into a moment in time, became poor so that we, for all time, for eternity, would know the riches of God. Amen? This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And Paul puts it right in the middle of this very nitty, gritty, specific story about people struggling with giving and people who are poor and people who are rich and ethnocentrism. Smack dab in the middle of that. The gospel. Jesus. Rich became. 
we respond to the generosity of God. And then right after this, in verses 10 and 11, I mean, I feel like Paul just like, composed this masterpiece, right? This is the gospel. It's this beautiful language. It's, it, 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 it taps into our imagination. And then what does he do? You'd think he might keep doing that, right? But what does he do? What does he do? Look at, look at, verse, look at verse 10, right? So he goes, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Okay, so that's what comes before. Here's this massive, beautiful gospel. And here's my advice, Paul says. Here's my advice. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Um, this, is, this is why Paul to me is so funny. Because he takes this brilliant, beautiful, almost poetic theology, and then he just smacks it right dab in the middle of so you know what you should do about that? Uh, you started giving last year. Maybe you should finish giving. That'd probably be a good idea. <laughs> he starts by saying, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm suggesting that you should do this. What, what do we see here? The gospel in us will always be tangible, always be practical, always be visible. We've talked about this before. Let's talk about it specifically as it relates to generosity today. This beautiful, amazing gospel, the idea that Jesus became poor so that we might know the riches of God. Paul places that right in the middle of, so that offering that you started collecting, hey, why don't you finish that? Wouldn't that be a good idea, right? You, you, you see this. This is not theology divorced from our practice. This is not like sing beautiful worship song and then just going home. This is the gospel in our pocketbook. This is the gospel in your credit card statement. This is the gospel in how you choose to spend your money. You see, the gospel touches all of that too. Did you know that? All of it. Here's this amazing thing that has happened, Paul says, and it has incredibly practical implications for our lives. When we give willingly and joyfully like the Macedonians, whether it's out of our poverty or our wealth, we are demonstrating the gospel to the world. I think that's one of the reasons that video that we showed earlier probably resonates with a lot of people. Because a lot of people haven't experienced the gospel in that way. Money, giving, the way churches interact with money, it seems to be about building a kingdom, lining someone's pockets sometimes. It's not necessarily about changed hearts where the gospel is transforming us from greedy, anxious, worried people to people with soft hearts who are generous to what God is doing in our world. Here's the last one. Generosity is a discipline. Generosity is a discipline. Does that sound contradictory to you? We just talk about gospel and grace. <laughs> but let's, let's just be really real. Uh, you and I continue to struggle with greed and with worry, don't we? Some of us have followed Jesus for a long time, and we still find ourselves at times struggling with greed and worry, right? Yes, yes, yes. 
Jesus has to tell his disciples repeatedly, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Why? Because this is a mark of of our identity as human beings. This is what we are being rescued from. And, and, And I would imagine that for most of us, there will be pieces of this that we wrestle with the rest of our lives. Because this is the world that we live in. This is the air that we breathe. And so because of that, generosity is a discipline. Even as generosity at its heart is evidence of God's grace is an, and is an expression of the gospel, you and I know that we often do not, in Paul's language, excel in this grace of giving, right? If I were to take a secret poll today and say, are you excelling at the grace of giving? I'm guessing most of us would be like, hmm. We, we battle with greed, with anxiety, with worry. We just do. So, so, so as we wrap up here, look at verse 6 one more time. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to a completion this act of grace on your part. Paul says, look, Titus was there when you started, so we're sending him back to remind you of what you committed to, what you started to, and urge you to finish. It's discipline, reminder. Look at verses 10 through 11 again. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this manner. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that in your eager willingness to do it, you may also be matched by your completion of it according to your means. This is discipline, isn't it? Right? Paul doesn't just go, just meditate on the cross. Right? He gets pretty practical, doesn't he? Doesn't he? I mean, he lifts the gospel up. He lifts Jesus up. He says, everything centers around this. So, finish what you started. So, those of you with the means, please contribute, Paul says. You see what he's doing here? It's practical. It's specific. It's disciplined. You love that word? You love that word disciplined? Especially when it comes to generosity and giving and money. No. Some of you do, but most of us probably don't. Um, Paul is not urging legalism here. I want you to hear this very, very clearly. Some of you come from a background where you think about giving and you immediately kind of have this, I should, if I don't, I'm in trouble, this legalistic bent. And so even as I talk about discipline, some of you in your head, you're going back there. Okay? Paul's not doing that. Paul, I would say, actually goes out of his way to avoid this in verse 8. I am not commanding you. I mean, Paul could say, I'm commanding you. Finish what you started. Suck it up. What does he do? I'm not commanding you. This is evidence of God's grace in your life. This is an opportunity to express the gospel. I'm not commanding you. He's going out of his way to avoid any sort of legalism. He says, but instead I want to test the sincerity of your love. Some of you really need to hear this. You cannot walk out today feeling weighed down or burdened by this. If you do, there's something missing. Because even in this discipline, there is grace. Amen. Uh, worship team can come back up. Um, 
So, so, so let, me, let me see if I can be a little bit specific about how this discipline might look like for us as a church. Um, and, and, I, and I'm always hesitant to do this because I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. I don't know where you are personally. I don't know how you've thought about this. I don't know where you are in terms of the generosity of your heart. I don't know where you are in terms of the gospel being true to you to the point where you are responding to that. I don't know. So I do this hesitantly, but because this is just how the Bible interacts with this thing. It's specific. It's tangible. It's physical. I want to just throw some things out, okay? If it doesn't stick to you, just let it fall to the floor. That's okay, all right? I actually want our community groups this week to spend the bulk of the time talking about this. How, how, how might this play out for me? Where do I need some help? How can I be disciplined in my response to God's generosity to me? That's, that's where I hope most of our conversations in our community group Bible study center this, this week. Um, but let, let me just suggest a few things here for you. First, tithing. Um... I'm not going to tell you that tithing is what you need to do. Because I, I think, actually, it's a little hard to find that in the New Testament. Uh, I think it's okay to tithe. I think that there's good evidence throughout the scriptures of why tithing is actually incredibly helpful and incredibly important. The problem is that we very often turn it into a law. We very often become fixated on a certain percentage. And this is not generosity. But I want to suggest to some of you that it may be a helpful starting point. And let me just share, Maggie and I, throughout our marriage, tithing has been a starting point for us. It's been something that's allowed us to have very specific, practical conversations about things that can otherwise feel almost out of reach. Does that make sense? So for us, tithing has never been a a duty or like we're giving not enough or just the amount or we're giving too much. It's always been a starting point for us to say, married couple, we're agreeing that this is we want to be and so we're going to start there and then see what God allows us to do from there. Does that make sense? So some of you have like, you're so like anti this thing that like the idea of a tithe, you're just not even, can I suggest that maybe it's a starting point for some of you? Maybe? Is that okay? That maybe some of you need to sit down and go, how much do I actually make? And what would it actually look like if I gave God 10%? What would it look like if I freed up 10% of my resources to be generous in my life? Some of you are going to go, what if I could do that with 20% of my resources, 30% of my resources? What would it look like if I were in a position to do that? What practical steps? You see what I'm saying is as the idea of a tithe being a helpful starting point? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, another very practical step. Um, Zach is our, our, our treasurer on our leadership team. Ask Zach after the service for a copy of our church budget. If you're going to be serious about the ministry of this church, if you're going to be serious about committing to financially participating in the mission of this church, you need to know where the money goes. Yes? Some of you are like, well, I just trust our leadership. Well, that's nice, but you know what? It actually might be laziness. You need to know. You need to understand that for our church, we try to be incredibly disciplined about where our money goes. You need to understand that the reason that we're in this building and that this building takes up such a large percentage of our income 
is that we believe God has called us to participate in God's mission in this school and in the surrounding neighborhood. When you give, you need to understand that. Yes? You need to be able to look at our budget and say, if if we're going to grow into this this year, it's going to allow us to participate in these opportunities in our neighborhood. At some point, we want to have an office in Bronzeville. Did you know that? Do you know we don't have an office right now? You know that our worship team every Friday night, these guys drive all the way up to Logan Square in rush hour traffic and, and do rehearsal? We want to have an office space for them. We want to have an office space where we're able to actually do ministry seven days of the week right here. You need to know where our money goes. You need to know that when we receive an offering, where it goes. You need to know that we're trying to tithe back to our denomination 10%, 5% to world missions so that the gospel may advance around the world and 5% to church planting so that people like us around our country would benefit from the support, the financial support as they seek to start new church communities that need new expressions of the gospel. You hear what I'm saying? That's Zach. He will give you his email address after the service. Okay? I hope some of you will do that. I hope some of you will get an email from Zach this week with an overview of our budget where you can begin praying, God, how can I participate in this specifically, tangibly, practically? Yes? Your community group. Your community group. Some, some of your groups, you need to start talking about money. I know, you don't talk about sex, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about money in our culture. Talk about all of those things in your community group. But this week, maybe talk about money. I think some of the biggest idols in our culture today are tied up in money. Our greed and our anxiety, these become idols in our lives that we center around. That might need to be confessed in your community group. You may need to admit to your community group, I struggle with this. I'm bound up with this. I don't know how to live generously. I'm in, de- I'm in debt so much that I can't see a way out of this. You need people in your life going to pray for you, we're going to hold you accountable, we're going to show you what it means to be disciplined in your generosity as you respond to the gospel. Amen? Yes? Am I pushing you too hard? Some of you, some of you are like, here's the last thing I want to say. Ask for prayer. This is a spiritual issue. Generosity, the things that keep us from being generous, are generous generous are spiritual in nature no really they are there there are those of you who who are in so much debt you feel that God is calling you to something specific but you can't actually imagine doing it because you're so kind of frozen up in debt that's a spiritual issue there are those of you who have too much money God has blessed you with, with, with earning potential, with a good education, and you're hanging on to too much of it because you don't feel like you have enough yet. That's a spiritual issue. There are some in our church who we're really good about being generous to other people, but receiving generosity, allowing people to actually know our needs so that they could be generous, we're horrible at that. That's a spiritual issue. You hear me? So some of you need to begin spending serious time in prayer over this. You need to begin asking God that that the gospel will become so true to you 
that you would excel in the grace of giving. Just like in everything else that we require grace for in our lives, every other gift, every other vocation, that we would excel also in this grace of giving. So after the service, if you want to come up front and ask somebody to pray for you, we will have folks available to pray for you. If you need to ask somebody in your community group to pray for you, I will pray for you. There are, there are spiritual knots tied up for some of us around this issue that need to be untied. Amen? So we'll start by, by praying together about those things. So church, what would it look like if we were known as a church that excelled in the grace of giving? Can you imagine that? What would that look like? What if we were known for our generosity in this neighborhood? What if, what if our neighbors encountered the gospel of grace through our generosity? What would that look like? What if the gospel was known in our church not simply as a private belief or a theological concept, but as the event in history that freed us from greed and worry? What would our life together look like if these things were true for us? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that um, your spirit would um, continue to be speaking to our hearts right now. As we acknowledge at the beginning that we can carry a lot of baggage with us into this topic we can hear things that maybe haven't been said or feel things that are not from you. And so we, we, we plead with you, Holy Spirit, that, that, that you would be speaking to us now, that you would be speaking your truth to us now. Some of us need a word of grace right now. Some of us might need a word of conviction right now. I don't know. We ask that you maybe kind of clear away some of the clutter, some of the baggage, Replace it with a reminder of your gospel. The pre-existing Son of God who had known nothing but the riches of the Father at a moment in time relinquished it, chose to give it up, to step into the poverty of our humanity, into our suffering, into our experience. And yet who even in that poverty did not sin, lived a perfect life so that on the cross as all of our poverty was put to death we might know for all time the riches of the Father give us that as our vision Jesus allow everything else that we talked about today to revolve around that allow our hearts to respond to that and to that only allow the discipline that we may be living into to to find that as our starting point Lord God pray all these things in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, this is, this is what I'd like to maybe encourage us to end this way. Um, I want to pray for us in just a moment, and then the worship team is just going just gonna to play for a little while. So if you need to head out, I just invite you to maybe head out towards the hallway where you can kind of talk and catch up with some folks. Um, but some of you maybe just need to hang out in here for a little bit. Maybe just stay in your chair, whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Let the Holy Spirit keep doing it in you. Uh, maybe some of you want to come forward for some prayer, just for some time to contemplate what God is speaking to.
okay? So don't rush out. Those of you who want to stay for a little bit, please stay. The rest of us can head out into the hallway. This is my last thing I want to say. This is the kind of message that um, it's really hard for me as the preacher to predict how people hear it. Uh, And so I'm aware that maybe some of you heard something today or something was pricked in you today that doesn't feel good. That you feel maybe um, frustrated about or confused about. Uh, And I just want to make myself very, very available to you in that. If there's something that I said today that doesn't make sense or kind of rubbed you the wrong way, please tell me that. Uh, Please have that conversation with me. Send me an email, grab me after the service uh, so that we can be together growing, growing, growing in our grace selling in our grace and giving. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Let me just speak this benediction over you and then again, uh, stay around, come forward, pray for one another or leave as you need to. And now God, we ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts and to our minds. Break down idols where there are idols. Build up your gospel. Remind us of our identity as children of God, sons and daughters of the king who has conquered sin, death, and evil. Bring to mind specific ways that we can excel in this grace of giving, but allow it to be a grace, Jesus, we pray. Some of us even today are going to encounter opportunities to be generous, and I would ask, God, that you help us to know how best to respond in those moments. Others of us, others of us are going to have opportunities to kind of take take stock of our lives, to look over our lives in very specific ways and if we cannot grow in this grace of generosity. Be with us then as well, Lord Jesus, we pray. Send us out now, Lord, under your grace, your gospel in our hearts and in our mouths. As we speak to one another this week, as we see each other, give us words of grace to say to each other. As we come back next week to worship you again, bring us back in safety. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It's not.